It's actually probably pretty unpleasant. Hello, good evening and welcome to the Australian Centre for the Moving Image and to Live in the Studio, where once a month we get to revel in all things TV, past and present. My name is Anna and tonight we are live in the studio on the wire with our panel, Michael Adams, Clementine Ford and Michael Williams. Before we get going, I thought it might be a nice start to just set up some house rules, more so for the panellists because I had quite a few people talk to me today just saying, I just can't do it, I can't come tonight, there's going to be too many spoilers and there probably are going to be a million spoilers but there are going to be some general conversation as well. So we'll just ask the panel when there's going to be something giant and painful. How many people here haven't seen all of The Wire? One. Get out. Two. Three. Four. <laughs> You're fired. How many people are too embarrassed to admit they haven't seen all of The Wire? <laughs> One. Cute. Are you, guys happy for us to, are you guys happy for us to talk about it all? You sure? <laughs> All right, so when it comes to last the episode time... Are you in. serious? <laughs> okay, so the Charlie Sheen cameo, <laughs> you don't want to know about that? All right, so you've got, you've got your options to uh, block, block your ears and close your eyes mm. when the time arises. Um, also, we're going to have an extended Q&A after the panel, so you'll, you'll have your own time to um, use context-appropriate expletives. Uh, the session is being recorded, so we've got two mics. Dan here will have one and we'll hand them around when that happens. Another very exciting thing is we have... Uh, here it is. Ooh. Ooh. You're going to have to work really hard for this one. And uh, we're going to open it up to the panel to judge you on something really excruciatingly embarrassing to get there. All right, so I'd like to introduce our chair for this evening. Michael Adams is the author of Showgirls, Teen Wolves and Astro Zombies, a film critic's year-long quest to find the worst movie ever made. Michael Adams has just finished up as one of the editors at Empire after 10 years. He has co-hosted the movie show and played a zombie in George A. Romero's Survival of the Dead. Other CV highlights include stints as a kitchen hand, local newspaper hack, Telemarketing asshole, video store clerk, nervous third world war zone correspondent, hardware store jockey, pool boy, schlock movie horror actor, and ice cream scooper. In addition to Empire, Michael has written for FHM and Men's Style, along with Rolling Stone and websites Movie Line, Rotten Tomatoes, and The Wrap. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Anna. <clears throat> All of which, I suppose, has nothing to do with The Wire. A book about bad movies doesn't qualify me to talk about this at all. So I was kind of a bit surprised when I was asked. My only sort of vague qualification is I actually saw the first season about six years ago and reviewed it and went, this show is fucking awesome, fantastic. Gave it a five-star review and then spent the next few months saying, have you seen this show? Have you heard of this show, The Wire? No one knew what I was talking about. Then I kind of forgot about it and then a few years later, it was people saying, have you heard about this show, The Wire? It's fantastic. And finally, I was playing catch-up. So... In the past few weeks, I've uh, consumed 60 hours of The Wire back-to-back, including watching season one again, and it was a labour of absolute love. It's a, it is a fantastic show, and with the, the possible exception of Two and a Half Men, the greatest piece of television programming <laughs> in the history of the world. So we're going to talk about The Wire, why it's so great, its themes, um, its locations, its re- relevance to reality, where it deviates from reality, um, 
And to do that tonight, we're, as Lester Freeman says, all the pieces matter. So to help us put the pieces together, we have this evening Michael Williams, who is the Head of Programming at the Wheeler Centre, Melbourne's new centre for books, writing and ideas. Um, he says that he's surprised he'd be referred to as a literary academic. Is that correct, sir? Uh, I'm, I'm neither literary nor academic, but quite happy to take that title. I'm getting the leather patches this week. So, I was thinking you do have a beard and a very handsome corduroy yeah, jacket. I'm professorial, so. what can I say? Indeed. And Clementine Ford is a professional television addict. Uh, she has apparently got a seven-season box set of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is uh, fantastic. I'm going to borrow that sometime in the very distant future. Um, she lives in Adelaide, which is the uh, murder capital of the world other than Baltimore, so that's why she loves Dexter. Um, and she's a blogger and journalist and uh, columnist. So um, these are our uh, wire experts this evening. And, of course, you are wire experts as well, being fans. And I mean, when I first was asked to do this, I was thinking, oh, it's a big sort of academic dissection of what it means, the themes, all that sort of stuff. And it's certainly that. But it's also a chance to kind of geek out. I mean, David Simon has said repeatedly that they didn't primarily conceive the program to be an entertainment. It's supposed to be challenging, and it certainly is that. But it's also awesome. It is very entertaining, and people love to quote their favourite characters, their favourite scenes. And because it did end, in the words of the New York Times, exactly at the right time, i.e. too soon, it leaves us with a lot of questions about what happens to characters, how things play out, and certain little points throughout the series that aren't actually picked up on at the end. So, in a way, our discussion tonight is a form of fan fiction. We get to sort of interact with it by talking to each other and, and you know, listening to the, the talks tonight. So, um, I'd like to first off just play the very first scene from the very first show of The Wire, season of Spoilers. The Wire. Spoilers. <laughs> there's a guy named McNulty, he's a bit of a drunk. But um, why I love it is, you know, there's a, a great line about what it means, but also it, show, it sets up... Uh, brilliantly, how the cops and the guys on the street are sort of, you know, both sides of a coin. They're sort of observing each other and whether they can meet and how they reflect is, you know, what we'll be talking about tonight. So, um, let's take that away. They shot it very, very dark the first season, influenced by The Godfather. Okay, the panel might start to act this out. Michael, can you be our snot boogie? I'm ready. All right. We have a bit of a technical glitch with that. Ah, here we go. You know, he forgets his jacket. So his nose starts running, and some asshole, instead of giving him a Kleenex, he calls him snot. So he's snuck forever. Doesn't seem fair. Life just be that way, I guess. So, who shot snot? I ain't going to no court. Motherfucker ain't have to put no cap in him, no. Definitely not. I mean, he could have just whipped his ass like we always whip his ass. I agree with you. He's gonna kill Snot. Snot been doing the same shit since I don't know how long. Kill a man over some bullshit. I'm saying. And every Friday night, we're in the alley behind the cut rate, we rolling bones, you know? I mean, all the boys from around the way, we roll too late. Alley crap game, right? Like every time, he's Snot. 
could fade a few shooters. Play it out to the pots deep. Snatch and run. What, every time? Couldn't help yourself. Let me understand you. Every Friday night, you and your boys will shoot crap, right? But every Friday night, your pal Snap Boogie. He'd wait till there was cash on the ground, then you'd grab the money and run away? You let him do that? We'll catch him and beat his ass, but ain't nobody never go past that. I gotta ask you. If every time Snap Boogie would grab the money and run away, why'd you even let him in the game? What? With Snap Boogie always stole the money. Why'd you let him play? Got this America, man. This is America, man. Well, to discuss whether that is true or not and which parts of America it reflects is going to be a large part of the discussion tonight. What I love about that is, you know, it sets up the rules of the game, you know. This guy, he wants to have his shot and he gets to, you know, he gets to do the same thing every time. He's been doing it forever. They whip his ass, but they've stepped out of the line this time. They've actually killed somebody, which is later in the show, what, this first episode. Not that guy's murder, but another murder is what triggers you know, the initial in investigation of the Barksdale mob who up until that point have gone pretty much under the radar. But, um... It sets up a very grim, I mean, the, the, the way it's framed with the guy's head blown off and our guys in the background. There is a sort of comic touch to it, but it's also incredibly grim. But against the grim background of The Wire, there is an extremely hopeful character. His name is Bubbles. We know him and love him. He's our favourite crackhead or heroin, heroin addict. And um, Clementine will be discussing you know, his role in all five seasons of The Wire. enjoying your talk so much that I didn't realise mine was coming up. Hoping it wasn't coming up. <laughs> um, yeah, like Michael, I have basically spent the last few weeks watching back-to-back -back episodes of The Wire. I started watching it uh, initially when I was in London last year. And um, I'm just going to ask everyone to be honest here. When they first started the first season, Michael says that he wasn't like this. But when he first started, did you kind of have to push through the first couple of episodes? Show of hands. Yes. Wow. See. <laughs> I was just so drunk I couldn't be bothered turning it off. <laughs> well, most everyone I've spoken to has consistently said, except for him, that you have to get past the first six episodes. And I think that that's one of the strengths of the series. And if they kind of reiterate that um, at the start of series three, when they enter into the kind of the middle of the case, series three, um, and series four, there isn't even really a case going on. But when series one of The Wire starts, there's already a million characters. You don't know any of their names. You're dealing with an entirely different language, really, which I think that Michael Adams will be speaking about a little bit later. But it's kind of a little bit like reading Irvine Welsh. You have to get used to the lingo first, and then by the end, it washes over you. It's, you know, Shakespearean as well. Um, so, yeah, I've been completely immersed in The Wire for the last three weeks to the point where... Has anyone here watched Oz? Yeah, so you know when you watch back-to-back -back episodes of Oz, you start walking around thinking that people are going to shank you? <laughs> and every <t> So I was riding... I've literally just been in my house watching The Wire and I was riding into town yesterday to... Um, I had to organise this photo shoot for some kids that I was doing an article on. And I was waiting for one of them to turn up and I sent... It was this really kind of grey, drizzly day. 
and I sent um, some of them down the street. It was like, just walk down the street and turn left and the newspaper building's there and I'll meet you there. And as I sent them away, I was thinking, but stick to the main streets. <laughs> stick to the main streets because it's not safe out there. I come from Adelaide. <laughs> so I just thought I'd um, introduce my introduction to The Wire. Um, obviously, once I got through those first six episodes, I became a rabid fan. Um, and as Michael said, I'm going to be speaking a little bit about Bubbles today. Um, in episode 10 of series three, Bubbles says to Kima Greggs, I think I have to try and do it in the accent, so bear with me, because otherwise it just won't right. work. Yeah. <laughs> little squeak off of Lamville. Yeah, she used to boo for Turtle Wells' old mob. She lost a little bit of weight, too. I mean, looking a lot better than I remember. I remember a lot about that girl. Damn, Bubs, is there anybody West Side you don't know? Just citizens and shit. <laughs> okay, you guys are going to have to embarrass yourselves a bit more than that <laughs> to get this. <laughs> In the final episode of season four, reformed drug addict come life coach Waylon visits one of the most uplifting and moving characters to grace the ensemble cast of The Wire, and perhaps any television show to date, I would argue. Distraught after a botched attempt to filter cyanide to the rat who's been harassing him fails and instead kills his young charge charade, Bubbles, the addict everyone wants to take home and give a good bath and a good meal and a good dose of goodness, collapses in Waylon's arms. Sent to the psychiatric ward after a suicide attempt, the self-hatred and loathing is written all over Bubbles' face. Or rather, it's depicted in the way Bubbles emerges from a semi-catatonic state to shield himself from Waylon's unconditional love and support. Burrowed into the arm of his chair, he has to be prized away by Waylon before he collapses, sobbing into his lap. In the penultimate season, it's the final glimpse we get of a man whose life, perhaps through no fault of his own other than the dumb luck of being born poor and black in Baltimore, is a chronicled Greek tragedy of epic proportions that starts and ends with his crippling addiction to heroin. It's testament to the magnificent acting of Andre Royo as Bubbles that he remains as heartfelt and sympathetic to the audience. When he falls, he falls hard, but when he rises, he has the capacity to carry you with him. He, along with Omar, is the anti-hero of a show in which there's no such thing as clear morality. Bubbles' characteristics from his lumbering gait, keep that in mind for later. <laughs> you may have to imitate it. <laughs> to his little dog lost eyes and his naturally protective, yet in his inability to be protective, impotent aura, all serve to render what could be a one-dimensional, singular-purpose character into the unseen beating heart of the show. With all the emphasis on the drug dealers in The Wire, Bubbles is the alternate side buried under the weight of the dead soldiers, which, as any Wire fan knows, refers not to the dealers themselves, but to the little vials of heroin sold on corners up and down the east and west side of Baltimore. After all, it ain't a game unless there's more than one player. But part of Bubbles' tragedy is that his plight, and the plight of all those people he represents, is exploited by the cops in their attempts to bring down a trade which will never be eradicated. Bubbles' meagre fee for being a CI is used to buy heroin, and the cops know it, they contribute to it, and in their own way, everyone benefits from it. But Bubbles' joy at being useful is also overlooked. In his own way, Bubbles wants to help because, like Omar, his moral code is fixed. Um, and if I just get Dougs to queue up that clip, um, check out his endearingly cocky swagger in episode three of season one, where he picks apart Sidnor's undercover guise as an addict. Come here, let me see. 
Detective Sidno's ensemble is the latest in West Side Project with. Have your torn camis by Versace. Nah, stained sweatshirt by Ralph Lauren. Where your mic? Down in my dip, man. I figure it ain't gonna go down there anyway, right? Well, no, Sidno, the way you twirl it around might be the first place they look. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> and I ain't showered in two days, I ain't shaved in four. Right now, I'm one. Right, nasty son of a bitch. Yo, Bubs, what you think? This your man, huh? Yeah. Is he low bottom enough for you? Clothes is tore down enough. You can use a little bit more stains, more dirt. What's this here? It's my wedding ring. You married to the needle boy. That shit been pawned off of you for real. Dead giveaway. You can stand to lose about 20 pounds. Some yellow in your teeth. Fresh bleeds on your hands. Okay, so maybe I should go out and shoot up some dope for about a year or two, man. Come back when I can really carry the look off. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, man. The more tore down, you look the better. You don't go down them towels, man. They're gonna take everything. Yo, how about the shoes? I mean, I know you ain't got no problem with the shoes, fucked up as they are. Let me see the shoes, man. See? You walking down them alleys of the projects, man, you stepping on the dead soldiers. Dead soldiers? Yeah, empty vials. You can't walk down the Baltimore streets without that shit cracking underneath your feet. You want to know if a fee for real? Check the bottom of the shoes. Okay? Have him dance on some empties before we go out there. Get us killed. <laughs> it hurt your feelings? A little bit. But it just occurred to me now, actually, that one of the saddest parts about that scene is that at the end, when McNulty asks Sidnor if he had his feelings hurt, no one considered it at all, but Bubbles' feelings may have been hurt too, that basically when Sidnor comes in and he's talking, you know, like he stinks, like a four-day-old, four right, unwashed person and, you know, his clothes are beaten to shit, that no one actually looks at Bubbles and they basically consistently ignore him throughout the whole series, really. I mean, even though he has the relationship with Kima and later on slightly with McNulty, that they never really look at him as being a realistic victim of the system that they're trying to fight, you know? It's not Sidnor's feelings that are being hurt, this is real life for Bubbles. And they don't really care except when they need to exploit him, as you see later on in series four when Herc basically fucks him over. Um, back to my speech. <laughs> I would in fact argue that Bubbles has one of the strongest senses of morality of everyone in the show. He's not without trans transgressions, but he consistently seeks to earn as close to an honest living as he can, as we later see with his establishment of Bubbles Depot, which I thought was adorable that he spelt it without the T. And he had his little sign on the front of his trolley. When Johnny, his freeloading heroin-soaked sidekick, chastises him in season three for earning money by snitching, Bubbles tries to convince him of the morality present in such a move. Johnny's prepared to bargain with the police when it comes to saving his own skin, but the notion of becoming a snitch offends his concept of us against them. When Bubbles helps him to con a workman out of cash, Johnny's inability to see the world around him is too much for Bubbles, and Bubbles disappears. 
But in fact, Bubbles gives and gives and gives, but is never given a break. His endless pursuit for family connection, which becomes so obvious after his sister begrudgingly agrees to let him stay in her basement but not come up the stairs, is played out through his nurturing of Johnny and then later Sherrod. All Bubbles wants is a family and a sense of belonging, but in a world filled with equally damaged and fucked up people, it's not easy for him to find. Again, it's testament to Roya's extraordinary skills as an actor that we feel so much compassion for Bubbles. I actually, I could be wrong about this. I know that Omar was only meant to be in the first seven episodes of series one and then he was supposed to be killed off, but he was such a fan favourite that they kept him on. And I can't find any evidence in favour of this, but Andre Roya wasn't credited in the first episode of season one and then later appeared slightly in the background of season two, uh, sorry, episode two of season two, and he wasn't credited in episode one of season two. Um, and I think that maybe something similar might have happened to him, that he was such a fan favourite from the first series because he's so heartfelt and such a point of sympathy for people that the writers must have brought him back. Again, I, I don't know that for sure, but I'm prepared to peddle that as fact. Um, his endless pursuit for family connection, uh, blah, 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 blah. It's testament to Rory's extraordinary skills as an actor, actor that we feel so much compassion for Bubbles. Bubbles is Dequan grown up, the boy he might have been, because he's not stupid, but got caught up on the downside of the game somewhere along the way. Both characters have shitty family lives, with Duquan's family abandoning, abandoning him before he's even old enough to be tempted by the drug. Both have mentors that have helped them along the way, Kima for Bubbles and Prez for Duquan. Yet the lack of purpose and support from those who matter most contribute to their downfall. Royu portrays this beautifully in season one when he meets Waylon at the Narcotics Anonymous meeting. While Johnny treats the exercise as a necessary get-out-of-jail-free card, organised by Bubs, Bubs hears the promise in Waylon's words and imagines, at least in that moment, a future where he may break free. Johnny's mockery of Bubs in this moment is heartbreaking, but Royu's subtle work in the scene demonstrates almost everything we need to know about Bubs and what he actually wants from the world. So if we just play clip two. I can see some of these faces in so long, but they were dead. Same thing, well, eh? Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to other addicts and practice these principles in all our affairs. Today's speaker is going to be Waylon, who, if you come to these meetings, you have to know. Well, here you all know I'm Waylon, and I'm an addict. And the fact is that I want to be clean today more than I want to be high. I know it's all right. It's good to be here. It's good to be anywhere clean. Even Balmer. I've been cleaned a few 24 hours now, and I'm still dead certain that my disease wants me dead. Yeah, I'm in here with y'all talking shit about how strong I am, how strong I feel. But my disease is out there in that parking lot doing push-ups on steroids, waiting for the chance to kick my ass up and down that street again. Scars on my hands, on my feet, two bouts of endocarditis, hep C and whatnot, knocking down walls and kicking out windows in my liver. I lost a good wife bad girlfriend <laughs> and the respect to anyone that ever tried to loan me money or do me a favor. Pawned my pickup, 
my bike, my National Steel guitar, and a stamp collection that my granddad left me. And when it was almost over for me, and I was out there on them corners, not a pot to piss in, and anyone that ever knew me or loved me cussing my name, you know what I told myself? I said, Waylon, you're doing good. <laughs> I surely did. I, I thought I was God's own drug addict, and if God hadn't meant for me to get high, he wouldn't have made being high so much like perfect. Now, I know I got one more high left in me, but I doubt very seriously if I have one more recovery. So if there's anybody out there that sees that bottom coming up at them, I'm here to talk sense. I don't care who you are, what you've done, or who you've done it to. If you're here, so am I. Of course, later in that scene, we see um, Bubbles grow up to start his first day of sobriety, which ends pretty much as soon as they leave the meeting and he and Johnny go and get high. But it's this constant struggle for Bubbles, this desire to be clean versus living on the streets in Baltimore. The idea of Bubbles' addiction is, as a necessity to both sides of the game is extrapolated in season three when Major Colvin introduces the concept of the free zones in what will later become Hamsterdam. It's one of the most blatant acknowledgements, without actually acknowledging it, of the necessity of using addicts to either fight the war on drugs or clear the way for real police work to be done. Somewhere, back in the dawn of time, this district had itself a civic dilemma, epic proportion. The city council had just passed a law that forbid alcoholic consumption public places, on the streets and on the corners. But the corner is, and it was, and it always will be, the poor man's lounge, where a man wants to be on a hot summer's night. It's cheaper than a bar, catch a nice breezy, watch your girls go by. But the law is a law. The Western cops rolling by, what were they going to do? They arrested every dude out there for tipping back a high life. There'd be no other time for any other kind of police work. And if they looked the other way, they'd open themselves to all kinds of flaunting, all kinds of disrespect. Now, this is before my time when it happened, but somewhere back in the 50s or 60s, there was a small moment of Goddamn genius by some nameless smokehound who comes out to cut rate one day. And on his way to the corner, he slips that just bought pint of elderberry into a paper bag. A great moment of civic compromise. That small, wrinkle ass paper bag allowed the corner boys to have their drink in peace and gave us permission to go and do police work. The kind of police work that's actually worth the effort. That's worth actually taking a bullet for. Dozerman, you got shot last night trying to buy three bottles. Three. 
there's never been a paper bag for drugs. Until now. At the height of Amsterdam's squalid anarchy, Bubbles is still trying to earn an honest living in the slum. His discovery of Johnny smacked out in an addict's paradise severs the final ties between the two, as Bubbles, despite his eternal optimism under the circumstances, recognises that he can't save his friend and his energy is being expended in the wrong place. Jugs, I think I'm just going to skip that last clip because I might be running out of time. Um, it's the mythological tragedy of Bubbles that is, for me, one of the most piercing elements of the series, but also his salvation. While the real-life Bubbles, or Possum, as he was based on, died from AIDS, Simon at least allows a different, more hopeful ending for Bubbles. Bubbles, spoiler, all right, so you know. Bubbles' rehabilitation and the re-establishment of relationship with his sister is an unlikely fantasy that, in a world of grit, grime and disorder, the writers have allowed their audience because it's it is perhaps his salvation that people depend on the most. A truly good man who is a result of the bad world he lives in, but who, unlike so many others in the series, keeps trying and trying and trying to do right. The parallel foreshadowed descent of Duquan is a nod not only to the cyclical nature of necessity, but the unlikelihood of such a fantasy ever becoming reality. In the Wireverse, though, we are occasionally allowed small glories. Bubbles would probably not climb back out after seeing the bottom of the glass, and the prospect of him escaping the bug, as they call it, would be slim if not virtually non-existent. But Bubbles represents hope and tenacity, his name itself brings forth the image of the perfect temporary thing that rises. He's the soldier who sells not drugs, but whiteies from his very own portable store. He tries to save Sherrod because he's constantly trying to save himself. And he is the one concession that the writers make to a bet on a four working out. The idea of Bubbles meeting a tragic end as so many others do, well, as they say so often in The Wire, that shit ain't right, yo. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> <laughs> the great thing about watching those clips is even after having watched 60 hours of the show in the past few weeks, I can actually see myself watching the entire thing again, possibly not next week, but at some time soon. I told a friend that I was doing this and she was like, ah, oh, this is how it worked for me. I got it, I watched it all back to back, I went and bought The Corner, that's the book David Simon wrote with Ed Burns, uh, read, read Homicide, his previous book, and then I started The Wire all over again. And it's the sort of thing that even knowing how it plays out, you get because you're sort of forced to actually take it all in as it's happening, it's quite complicated. It doesn't sort of, you know, assume, it, doesn't make, it doesn't catch you up. You have to catch yourself up. Watching it again, you can see nuances and different things that you, I think you can reappreciate on a second viewing. Now, Bubbles is obviously the, the beautiful beating heart, and he's a very unlikely sort of hero, um, you know, a drug addict who works the streets and involves himself in short cons. The even more unlikely hero of the Wire, however, is a different character altogether, Omar. Um, he's got fans in very high places indeed, and to talk about Omar and also the triumph of the Wire as a possibly new narrative form, please welcome to the stage Michael Williams. Firstly, I just want to anticipate the disappointment of those of you in the audience who, when they saw the ad for today and saw that Michael Williams was talking, thought it would be the actor who played Omar. Um, I get that you're disappointed about that. Imagine my disappointment when I found out this wasn't a panel about NCIS, because I've prepared quite a few comments about that quirky Donozo uh, 
honestly, I've seen like two episodes of that thing and I hate it so much. <laughs> but it's something that's really interesting to me is the show of hands uh, before we began and the people in the audience who haven't seen the series through. I'd kind of imagined that the audience would be made up tonight of obsessives. And there's a curious thing going on that we can both sustain an event here for obsessives, but also people who are relatively new to it or who are halfway through discovering it want something more, want to kind of dig a little deeper. And that's largely what I just wanted to touch on tonight before we go to a general discussion between all of us and hopefully between you. And part of, uh, I thought I might kick off with, I was trawling through all the various uh, hyperbole around the show uh, that's available in various uh, reviews and articles. And one jumped out at me by a guy called Daniel Feinberg who was doing his summary of the best uh, TV shows of the decade. And I just want to read briefly from it. He unsurprisingly uh, said uh, that The Wire was his best show of the decade. Uh, in fact, he says it's the great television achievement of the decade. But then he goes on. He says, having completed his list of the top 30 films of the decade, The Wire towers over all of them. And actually, if he were asked to complete a list of his favourite novels of the decade, once again, The Wire, he thinks, was the uh, unparalleled achievement. So, he, uh, in his words, uh, keeping things neat and simple, I have no trouble saying that The Wire is the decade's defining creative endeavour. Now, that's no small, uh, no small claim for it. Uh, we hear often that it's uh, superlative TV, it's television the like of which we haven't seen before. And it's that statement that I kind of want to look at and think about why this is a different beast, why this is affecting us so differently. He goes on to say, if he was teaching a college course on the United States of America and the American dream, he would put the wire on the syllabus next to Citizen Kane and The Godfather Part Two, alongside Moby Dick, The Great Gatsby, The Invisible Man, and The Grapes of Wrath. Uh, another notable online TV critic, a guy called Alan Seppenwall, uh, said that the wire is a viable candidate or proxy for the ever-elusive great American novel. This is the novel, TV as novel, or the novel as TV. And I just want to think a bit about what makes that the case. I think both Michael and Clementine have touched upon it a bit, and there are a number of elements that I want to point to today. The first one is its relative inaccessibility, that very quality that says you have to work a little bit, that you can't come to it as a, a passive observer, I think is a crucial thing. And I, at this point, want to pay tribute to David Simon. Uh, this is unmistakably a work with an author, um, and anyone who hasn't read his extraordinary book, Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets, uh, should do so. Simon was a journalist for the Baltimore Sun. Uh, he went out essentially on secondment for an entire year with the Homicide Unit of Baltimore and wrote about it in an extraordinary book. That book went on to become an NBC TV show, which is fantastic, and if you haven't watched that, just go out. What are you doing sitting listening to a talk, you people? <laughs> go out and see this stuff. Um, but uh, it then eventually went on to become The Wire. And stories like the Snot Boogie story that opened the series all come from Simon's journalism. This is a TV series we're watching that's been written by journalists. It's been written by novelists. It hasn't been written by conventional TV writers. And I think that's a crucial distinction. In an interview with Nick Hornby, uh, David Simon was asked... Uh, about his process and the question of kind of truth and how to capture this. Mm. You know, journalism as entertainment is murky territory. Uh, the actress playing Kima Greggs grew up in commission flats and felt uncomfortable in the first series, said in a number of interviews that she felt that trading on the kind of misery that was going on there for the purposes of entertainment was something that she felt 
was almost unjustifiable. It was only seeing the finished product that she felt that something different was happening here. This wasn't about creating entertainment. This was something that was unfamiliar from the world of TV before. But I'm going to quote from David Simon now. Uh, language warning, not a spoiler warning. Uh, my standard for verisimilitude, that's not the language I was talking about, <laughs> uh, is simple. And I came to it when I started to write prose narrative. Fuck the average reader. I was always told to write for the average reader in my newspaper life. The average reader, as they meant it, was some suburban white subscriber with two point whatever kids and three point whatever cars and a dog and a cat and, a, and lawn furniture. He knows nothing and he needs everything explained to him right away. So that exposition becomes this incredible story-killing burden. Fuck him. Fuck him to hell. <laughs> oh, God, you've got to love that. That's a, I don't know. I watch those clips and I go, oh, buddy, Colvin, oh, that's fantastic. I hear David Simon interviewed and I get that same kind of, oh, this is someone who's throwing down a challenge, who isn't doing television by way of comfort, isn't doing television by way of entertainment, isn't doing television by way of trying to sell something to us. He's actually trying to tell a story. And the resistance on the part of this story for you to dip into it casually, for you to watch a little snippet and not see the next bit or not see what's come before is a crucial part of that. Now, if we think about The Wire as constructed as one massive novel, one 60-hour-long novel uh, where each episode is not even a chapter, a section of a chapter. They, they, everything in the structure informs that. Episodes don't end on cliffhangers. They often end on strangely kind of anticlimactic uh, kind of down notes in the narrative where you kind of go, oh, oh, it's done. Well, I better skip to the next episode on the DVD. Because I imagine we've all, everyone in this room is watching it on DVD rather than watching it on network TV. This is not the old model of television watching. This is long-form narrative. This is something that we're embracing and we're getting into and, and letting it kind of wash over us. But woe betide the casual viewer of The Wire, the person who thinks they can watch an episode and move away. The greatest rewards from it come from that long-form narrative. And it's with that in mind that I'd like to play the first clip, uh, which I, when I was trying to choose clips uh, to play today, this one was on any shortlist that I drew up. So I thought it might be a useful starting point. <coughs> Mr. Little, can I ask why you came forward in this case? I told the police what I know. Were you offered anything in exchange? Like what? Were you arrested? Were you going to be charged with a crime? And by testifying, did the police agree to drop those charges? No, man, ain't even about that. How many times have you been arrested as an adult, Mr. Little? Sure, I've lost count. Not doing that to take it personal. Possession of a handgun, possessing a concealed weapon, assault by pointing, robbery, deadly weapon, possession of a handgun again, followed by violation of parole on weapon charges, followed by one count of attempted murder and use of a handgun in commission of a felony. That wasn't no attempt murder. What was it, Mr. Little? I shot the boy Mike Mike in his hind parts, that all. <laughs> Fixed it so he couldn't sit right. Why'd you shoot Mike Mike in his, um, his hind parts, Mr. Little? Let's say we had a disagreement. A disagreement over? Well, you see, Mike Mike thought he should keep that cocaine he was slinging and the money he was making from slinging it. I thought otherwise. <laughs> so you, you rob drug dealers? This is what you do? Yes, sir. You walk the streets of Baltimore with a gun, 
taking what you want when you want it, willing to use violence when your demands aren't met. This is who you are. Why should we believe your testimony then? Why believe anything you say? That's up to y'all, really. You say you are here testifying against the defendant because of any deal you made with police. True that. That you're here because you, you, you want to tell the truth about what happened to Mr. Gant in that housing project parking lot. Yep. When in fact, you are exactly the kind of person who would, if you felt you needed to, shoot a man down on a housing project parking lot and then lie to the police about it, would you not? And look, I never put my gun on no citizen. You are a moral, are you not? You are feeding off the violence and the despair of the drug trade. You're stealing from those who themselves are stealing the lifeblood from our city. You are a parasite who leeches off Just like you, the culture man. of drugs. Excuse me? What? I got the shotgun. We got the briefcase. It's on the game, though, right? <laughs> Where do we even begin with that scene? There is so much in it. It is so deliciously funny. The first thing to say about where to begin with it was it was a very hard scene to choose where to start and where to end. Just prior to the stuff that we saw, you had uh, Omar's own lawyer asking him, how do you rob drug dealers for a living? And his answer was, oh, I guess a day at a time. <laughs> Just before that, Omar preparing in the, uh, in the ante room uh, helps the guard with his crossword, with his knowledge of Greek tragedy. Uh, if you go further back, you get the lawyer advising Omar to wear anything with a tie. Everything you see in the scene is a payoff from something else you've seen before. The character that we've seen built up, the substance, the, the ideas behind it, the fact that in that courtroom, and you can only see them in the background in that scene, but Stringer Bell is sitting in that courtroom, and in the row behind Stringer Bell is McNulty, because when they're in court, McNulty always sits pretty close behind Stringer to see what's going on. We know that from series one, episode one, and it's paid off again and again. For people who have been watching the show from the beginning, the depth and the nuance in that scene is, is overwhelming. To dip straight in, sure there's entertainment, sure there's something very funny going on, but David Simon's less interested in that glancing entertainment and more interested in building up something of depth. It's, uh, Michael was alluding before to the fact that when asked in an interview who his favourite character in The Wire was, Obama, a, uh, a self-professed wire nut, said Omar. I, I love to think about the conversation Obama had with his advisors after <laughs> saying that. <laughs> You've gone with the gay, violent, drug uh, gangster, essentially, as your favourite character, Mr President. Are you sure that's wise? <laughs> it's, uh, the advisors would have been... He wasn't president yet, that's true. So more power to him. I couldn't agree more. Not president yet and still happy to say it. I, I think in a campaign where he was going out of his way to eschew any idea of the angry black man image, uh, to say that Omar was his favourite character was, you know, was up there with... I mean, it wasn't quite as good as Gordon Brown's advisers uh, <laughs> not taking off his microphone. I am lapel mic tonight and after this session I'm going to go and call you all bigots out there and see, <laughs> see how that plays. But the, there is something wonderful about Omar, but in a way he's the most cartoonish figure in The Wire, in a show that trades in gritty realism and misery. There is something almost out of place about this character who steps straight from the pages of a western. His whistling of the farmer in the dell, and as a nice little piece of trivia, the actor Michael K. Williams actually can't whistle 
They have a stunt whistler for those scenes. It's, it's the, the little things that matter here. Uh, but as he, as he comes onto scene larger than life as this extraordinary cartoonish figure, he could sit at odds with everything else that's in there. Certainly, and there is a spoiler alert here, as he takes the leap uh, from the tenement window in the fifth series and improbably survives, uh, it's possible to watch that and think, well, that's not going to happen. It's entered into the realms of fantasy now. Uh, David Simon is at great pains to say that's based on a real event and the real man it was based on jumped from two floors higher than Omar did and they had to bring it in a bit just to make it more plausible for the audience. Verisimilitude isn't just about not explaining things to people, it's about putting things in a context that gives it dramatic weight. For all I'd like to emphasise, Simon's coming at this with the journalist's uh, impulses. He's still creating a piece of drama and to help him with that, uh, three of the kind of key writers on The Wire, uh, Richard Price, Dennis Lahane and George Pelicanos, all extraordinary novelists in their own right, not TV writers, but they, George Pelicanos writes the second last episode of every series and so uh, the, some of the most dramatic, most distressing events through the course of the five series happen in Pelicanos episodes. In Pelicanos's books, similarly distressing things happen and yet I don't think I've ever been moved by anything in one of Pelicanos's novels the way I was moved, for example, spoiler, apologies, by the death of Wallace at the end of series one. In, the, in that scene, in the way it's built up, it's almost a peculiarly televisual effect that's taking us over. We've seen that, and a big part of that comes from something that I think Clementine touched upon when she so gamely did Andre's, uh, Andre Rio's voice before, not Andre Rio, let's say someone different altogether. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to do his voice later though, so uh, just into the lapel mic. Richard Price's Clockers is an extraordinary novel if you haven't read it. And I'm just going to read uh, from the first paragraph. Strike spotted her, baby fat, baby fat, baby face, Chanel or Chanette, 14 years old maybe, standing there with that queasy smile trying to work up the nerve. He looked away, seeing her two months from now, no more baby fat, stinky just another pipehead. Her undisguised hunger turned his stomach, but it was a bad day on his stomach all round, starting with the dream about his mother last night, with her standing in the window looking at him, pulling the shades up and down, trying to signal him about something, then on to this morning, being made to wait for an hour in the municipal building before anyone bothered to tell him his probation officer was out sick, and then peanut this afternoon, not respecting two for one hour, and now right here, some skinny white motherfucker coming on to the word trying to buy bottles. It's an amazing novel, and yet, I read it, and this will come as a shock to you, but even though I came from South Central Brunswick, uh, that's not my language, that's not my voice. When I read it, part of the experience has to be about uh, taking on the voice that Richard Price is writing for me. A great novelist can do that to you. A great novelist can draw you in and have your, the internal voices you read it be someone else's. But television gives us a chance to hear these people in their own voices. It's no small thing that uh, the woman who plays Snoop is effectively Snoop, that we're hearing that character, those experiences, those things told in her own voice. The verisimilitude is crucial to the experience in the way. It doesn't have to be all true, it doesn't have to be all journalism, but it has to have the air of authenticity about it, that where television can bring a quality that the novel cannot is that it can actually show us the streets of Baltimore, it can show us the experience in a way that even the finest novels struggle to do struggle to as efficiently take us to a world that is not our own, as efficiently convey so much about character with only, only a single scene, only a glimpse of something. I, 
The other way in which this sits separate, and for all I jest about NCIS at the start, this, The Wire originally made it onto TV through stealth. It made it onto TV because David Simon was able to pitch it to HBO as effectively a police show. He pitched it as an anti-police show, one that flew in the face of the conventions. But it was only because it fitted into certain genre conventions that were recognised and accepted that it managed to find its way onto air. I find it extremely doubtful that, say, Series 4 with uh, the, or Series 2, down on the docks, to try and sell that TV show I think would have been a much bigger ask. But to say, well, look, this is about police fighting a war on drugs, at least gives it a framework that's familiar. And it's the way in which it deviates from that framework that The Wire becomes something truly extraordinary. Because so much about genre fiction, and in particular crime fiction, both in books and on TV, is about reassurance. It's about uh, something that's upset the status quo and the way in which the good forces of law and order manage to uh, rekindle equilibrium by the end of it. You watch the hour, at the end, it's all okay. You go and eat something, go to bed. Probably not in that order. Don't eat just before you go to bed. I understand that's how you put on weight. Um, but the wire flies in the face of that. The moments when we see McNulty in series four, when he's given up being a detective, he's gone back to being a, a foot patrol in the Western District, are the moments where he's happiest. A massive grin plasters his face. Every time he comes onto the scene, he seems content. He kind of radiates this uh, sense of well-being. And it's because he's stopped giving a shit when it's not his turn. He's stopped being driven by a desire to challenge the institutions that are so poisoned, so flawed, so undermining American society. By not challenging them, any, them anymore, he finds a, uh, finds a possibility of being a human being of not being bad for the people around him, of not being bad for himself. This is pretty bleak as a kind of underlying thesis of, a, of the TV show. If we accept that that's what The Wire's about, if, as Marla Daniels says, you cannot lose if you do not play, then this isn't about restoring equilibrium. This is about saying, fend for yourself because society is sick and if you try and challenge it, bad stuff's going to happen. You're not going to get anywhere. Now, maybe that's not the central thesis, and I'd be really interested to kind of discuss that both with Clementine and Michael and with the people in the audience, because it seems almost too grim to accept. But I'd like to play uh, one more clip, if I may. I've always wanted to be able to do this, by the way. Just uh, I'd like to play a clip. said you'd be here. Still, kind of thought it'd be one of your minions showed up in the flesh. You calling some of my papers paper? I was just working. Doing what a man is supposed to do. Well, I know you've been busy. Caught some talk from them young men you rousted over there on the west side. That was about a gun. Belonged to a police. Yeah, caught some talk about that, too. Well, this here, it's about something else. A girl by the name of Tasha got her head blown off in a firefight. If you're not here to cooperate, then why are you here? Okay, I could just pull up that other girl from your squad. She ain't gonna talk to you. Ain't nobody gonna talk to you. 
I just came in to make that clear, man. Ain't no thing. Because I already got me an eyeball with. <laughs> you do? Mm-hmm. I don't know about that. Old Bruiser, he'd be blind behind that fortified half the time. Shit, you're gonna have to dry him out just to get him on the stand. Besides, he done had a change of heart to that story. That's what I heard anyway. She passed that. Y'all gonna have to call this one of them, um, cost of doing business things y'all police be talking about all the time. You feel me? No taxpayers. Shoot the way y'all looking on things. Ain't no victim to even speak on. Bullshit, boy. No victim? I just came from Tasha's people, remember? All this death, you don't think that ripples out? You don't even know what the fuck I'm talking about. I was a few years ahead of you at Edmondson, but I know you remember the neighborhood, how it was. We had some bad boys for real. It wasn't about guns so much as knowing what to do with your hands. Those boys could really rack it. My father had me on the straight. But like any young man, I wanted to be hard too. So I would turn up at all the house parties where the tough boys hung. Shit, they knew I wasn't one of them. Them hard cases would come up to me and say, go home, schoolboy, you don't belong here. Didn't realize at the time what they were doing for me. As rough as that neighborhood could be, we had us a community. Nobody, no victim who didn't matter. And now all we got is bodies and predatory motherfuckers like you. And out where that girl fell, I saw kids acting like Omar. Calling you by name, glorifying your ass. It makes me sick, motherfucker, how far we done fell. Yeah. <laughs> it, the first scene with Omar, I think, is what makes The Wire such a good show. This second scene, for me, is what makes it such a great show, that it would be easy to make him a hero. The man's got a code. He doesn't hassle anyone who's outside the game. He's a hero to many people. But for the show to unashamedly confront the dangers of making a hero of someone like Omar... Uh, is what makes it such an exciting and kind of complex show to watch. The children that Bunk has seen playing at being Omar in the street include... Uh, the kid who's playing at being Omar in particular is Canard, um, and unfortunately this is an unavoidable spoiler, but Canard is, is the kid who uh, goes on to play an integral role in Omar's eventual downfall. The cyclical nature of things... I kept that as vague as I could. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what you people want from me. Um, the cyclical nature of things is, as ever, one of the kind of key themes of The Wire. But the, the other theme in that uh, second scene that I really wanted to point towards was community and the fact that no matter how uh, broken and defeated the America of The Wire is and how much uh, 
I would argue that Simon and his other writers are writing about the futility of trying to bring down those institutions uh, that are so poisoned and broken. There is still this idea that there is a value to giving a shit when it's not your turn, that uh, even if the personal stakes are high, even if ultimately uh, it's a futile kind of mission, there is, there is something at the heart of it that means that there's no greater compliment in the world of the wire than to be good police. Um, there's no greater achievement to be, than to be someone who gives a shit when it's not your turn. And I hope that in the discussion we have now, we can think about that kind of relationship between optimism and pessimism in, in The Wire. I think it's an extraordinary television show. I think the fact that uh, some of you have bothered to come out tonight and you've presumably got it at home, you could be sitting watching it instead of hearing us talk about it, means that it's doing something different to us than merely giving us an entertainment. This is television as art, and I know that sounds pretentious and overblown to say, but I, I think that the intent, the fact that it's not going for the easy laughs, it's not going for the comfort, it's not going for the security of answers, uh, makes it something very special indeed and exciting to watch. And I will re-watch it again and again and again. The last point I'd make before I got down was that I've been re-watching Homicide Life on the Streets. And one of the big differences between the two shows that struck me, Homicide was screened on NBC, uh, The Wire screened on HBO. In many ways, Homicide's a much more conventionally formed show. It had crossover episodes with Law and Order. Um, but the one thing that strikes me is that's very present in Homicide, that's not present in the same way in The Wire, is a sense of victims and innocent victims. The Wire is so caught up in the world of people who are in the game one way or the other that even the innocents, even the people that it breaks your heart to see them kind of destroyed or swallowed up by it are inexorably part of the big machine that is the project of The Wire, writing about the, the modern American city. And you very rarely see in The Wire people who feel like they're completely innocent one way or the other. And I think that that's a bit of a loss. And I think that we can watch the snot boogie scene again. And the thing that I think watching it again, I suddenly realise how young snot boogie is. That the first time I watched it, I was caught up on the this, this is America man. But it's a kid and the, this is innocence uh, completely perverted and destroyed. And uh, yeah, it's a bit grim actually. I'm going to go and drink myself into oblivion <laughs> or something. Uh, but thank you all. Uh, it is a bit grim, but I suppose the thing that I've found in it is that there are moments of hope. I mean, they can't make the, the show entirely grim. I'd just like to talk with you guys, first off, I suppose, about what you think the show actually values. I mean, it seems to me that trying to reform institutions, be they the, the drug trade, police, any aspect of society in the larger sense, seems to meet with you know, failure or mixed results at best. What do you think are sort of the, the, the hopeful messages, I suppose, and the hopeful characters who affect a positive outcome? Oh, it's such a broad show that that seems like a really, really difficult thing to answer succinctly. Well, for me, I, last night I spoke to a friend of mine and we were sitting there and we went, OK, well, which character from The Wire would you most like to be? Very geeky thing to say. But we both came up with the same guy. It seems that there are actually a few... While it, it's sort of, you know the accepted wisdom that there are no good guys or bad guys in the show. I would argue, and when we spoke earlier on, there are, I mean, they're sort of interlocking circles. In the, in the middle, most people have d degrees of corruption and, and good and bad in them. There are people on the fringes. I mean, Marlo Stanfield is one evil motherfucker. But at the other end of the field, was like, for us, was Lester. I mean, he seems to be a, 
not only a good police, but someone who genuinely cares about people and is pretty much, you know, uh, acts in accordance with his own code. Part of what's interesting about Leicester for me is that Series 5 indicates that Leicester, in a way that I don't think is clear earlier in the show, is guilty of the same hubris that McNulty suffers, that actually there's the same vanity, the same arrogance, the same desire to be the smartest guy in the room. And whereas, I mean, for both Leicester and McNulty, it provides their downfall, Leicester's smart enough to be getting out at the right time. He still gets his pension, he's got Chardine at home, cool Lester Smooth's in the mood for loving. Mm -hmm. And, and he's, Lester, got the, he's got the supplemental income from the little miniatures. Yeah, that's right, he's, he makes little miniatures. He's got it made. What, what more do you need? <clears throat> There's, but he is still guilty in getting involved in the serial killer plotline in the final series. He is still guilty of those same kind of sins that mean that McNulty will never be happy as long as he's a police officer. And that tension seems really interesting to me. I mm. agree Lester uh, is an enormously appealing, enormously sympathetic character. But, I, I mean, someone like Bunk is interesting to me. It's, uh, as we talked earlier, I was making the point that on my rewatch recently, I found that I experienced some parts of the show very differently to the way I had the first time. And one of the most notable ones was I had no time for Tommy Carcetti at all the second time around. Whereas the first time... I wanted to believe his dream of a new dawn for Baltimore. Having seen what came of that dream, I, I had no patience for him. He seemed, he seemed slimy and arrogant and everything else. And Clementine made an interesting point. Well, I'd just be interested to see what um, other people in the audience think of this as well, is that, for me, whether or not Tommy's dream for Baltimore was genuine or not from the beginning, he always had that undercurrent of... Um, I was uneasy about him. I, I, it didn't come as a surprise to me that he became as corrupt as the rest of them. And I think that that is because one of the very first scenes we saw of him was him having sex with the girl on the bathroom sink after the party, when you've just seen his wife go home. And that kind of, not that I want to deviate this question mm. too much, but that... I thought I already did that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a riff. But that leads into an interesting question as well, which in The Guardian's excellent series of blog posts that they've done on The Wire over, over the seasons um, ask the question of how women are represented in The Wire because there's very few examples of... I, I think that Kima is um, a fully formed character but I think that she's very different to any other kind of woman that you'd see on a police show the or generally on television anyway. I mean, there, there are a couple of things out of that for me. Firstly, yes, we see Karketi cheat very early on but we see Bunk sitting in a bathtub having burnt his clothes to get rid of the trace evidence. And somehow that doesn't diminish, and he continues to be a womaniser throughout and a drunk, and, a, and yet that doesn't diminish the qualities that make him it's interesting. Though, we never, we never see Mrs those... Bunk, though, do we? We never see Mrs so Bunk. She's, she's never humanised. His, his sort of philandering is never given a, a, a victim for one of the But uh, on, no, I'm just on wondering the if it's a different way of the representation of women, because with Carcetti you do see his wife, and she is a bit of a cardboard cutout. I mean, mm. one of the things I'm most interested in about Treme, David Simon's new series, is seeing, I think it's quite appropriate that he's created a world in the wire that's a predominantly masculine world, but I want to see him write for interesting, vital, heterosexual women. I, I mean, I, I think Kima's a terrific character. I think Rhonda Perlman, on the other hand, is pretty inconsistent and pretty unsatisfying as a character. I don't feel like I ever got a handle on why she would continually sleep with Jimmy. Now, maybe Jimmy's charisma is so boundless that you couldn't resist <laughs> it. But honestly, the state he's in when he shows up at her door... It doesn't... 
it doesn't ring true for me in the same way that so much else in the show does. I don't think, I think that that's one of the writer's weaknesses, is that I don't think that they write particularly consistent female characters. There's very few of them anyway. Um, for as Michael and I were talking about earlier, the representations of women within the drug trade are not as fully fleshed out as they could be. The exception I'd make is Brianna Barkstow, I think, is an amazing character. And I think that, yes, she's got a little bit of the Lady Macbeth thing going on with the persuading D'Angelo not to give evidence. And but see, I would have liked to have seen more of her. I would have liked to have seen more of her relationship with Avon, more of her role within the trade. I mean, she's completely offset by the totally one-dimensional one dimensional awfulness of Yolanda, who, I, to me, one of the reasons why Kima was such a successful character and why she fit in so well with the department was because, as she um, points out quite early on to McNulty, is that people know that they can't sleep with her. So she doesn't have that, to... That doesn't stop McNulty from crying <laughs> at several points. I mean, yeah. she doesn't have to work at... You know, whereas we were saying that to an extent some of the other female characters in the series, um, it's almost like they're written trying to make it in a man's world. You it know, is like interesting, the other strongest female character is, uh, is Snoop, who mm. is, you know, in, even in the casting of Snoop, Michael Williams, the other Michael Williams, came up and said, is you a boy or is you a girl? Hey, my name is my name. Yeah. Word is bond. <laughs> um, I find that really interesting. It seems that they are more comfortable writing women who are masculine um, or... The, the, the sort of more traditional female roles. And yet, leaving aside the fact that Snoop was Snoop, so the casting was probably uh, a slightly more difficult process, the, one of her best moments comes from her single moment of kind of self-conscious femininity. Mm. At the moment, I'm so sorry, this is a terrible spoiler. <laughs> I feel very bad doing this, but yeah. uh, mm. the, she, she has an married, extraordinary moment. Birds. Yeah, and, and uh, <laughs> moves in with a wacky other family. They have adventures, it's great. <laughs> they miss the Drummond, it's really weird. Uh, but, but the hand to the side of the head and the how's my hair, Michael, mm. is a heartbreaking moment precisely because it undercuts that androgyny that so characterised her before then. And we never really see the, in, the inside of Snoop's life. It reminds me of the scene, which I love, it, it, when McNulty finally gets up into Stringer Bell's apartment and is like, holy, we've got, actually got this scene. Have you got it? It's only 25 seconds long. But it's like this bit here. It's, um, Pop, it hints good. at a whole other story. I love the fact there that, you know, we think we know Stringer because we've seen him at community college or at college studying business and, you know, they think they know him because they're up on him on the wire. And then there's this whole, and you know, the beautiful contrast between the shitbox that we've seen that Nolte live in with this beautifully ordered apartment makes us wonder who is Stringer when he's in this place just by himself. I mean, that's what I love about this. It's a, there's so much open-endedness to it 
that you can sort of, you know, it, it demands that you, uh, you think about it and I suppose come up with your own answers to some extent. But with Snoop, we, we don't really know her background at all. I mean, in that little final moment, how's my hair, hints at this whole other aspect to the character. The same way when we see Chris in this one scene where, you know, this cold-blooded killer who's, you know, killing people and quick-liming them, boarding them up in the vacant, takes a bit of time out to, his, to go and visit his wife and family and he's, we think, God, this guy's got kids. Again, we're only seeing, they're holding up Baltimore and all of its facets, but all of those facets have facets as well, which is, you know, I think one of the most remarkable things about it. But that's one of the great things about the show as well is that, for me, I didn't really even realise until about halfway through the entire series that I was watching it in the way that we watch all television shows, which is assuming that everyone knows everything that's going on. And yep. um, one of the best, or one of the most telling moments for me was when they find out that Avon's been released on parole and it happens a number of episodes after he's been released and every other cop show we've ever seen they know instantly mm. that's what's happened because it Although moves the detective exposition here he's exactly. been released from jail get the wire exactly. back up so you get the sense and it sneaks up on you that you don't you're not really fully confronted with the sense that there are so many different layers of things going on and so mm. many different stories that they they don't know a hundred of the pieces they only know handful of them. That's right. And also where we expect that, you know, the, that phone call is going to be made and it's going to trigger the investigation again. What I love about is is how it, we've been bred to expect certain things from a cop show. I mean, when we started with, you know, the gangster films of the 30s, the, the, the government was, you know, very pissed off that these gangsters were being glorified, so the Hayes Code was introduced, which stipulated, you know, you can show these guys, you know, Edward G. Robinson and all those kind of cats doing all their nefarious deeds as long as you bring them to justice at the end. And ever since then, throughout cop shows on TV, we've, we've been you know, brought up to expect that. And that sort of uh, was continually subverted in the wild, which I loved. I mean, touching on Car Kitty, as we did earlier, you know, we're introduced to him, we're not sure about him, then we see him you know, having sex with this woman who's not his wife in the bathroom, and we're like, right, scumbag. The rest of that season then gradually convinces us that he is genuine and you actually do believe it. And then you think, okay, so I've got it. The guy really means well. What's going to happen is he's going to get in and then this is going to come back to bite him. When in fact what happens is he's, he reforms his adulterous self. He actually says no to that. Then So instead he fucks Baltimore to get to the governor's mansion. So it's continually subverting our expectations, which is great because you've got to stay on your toes. So I suppose one of the questions I had for you guys was, you know, what was the most sort of satisfying, unexpected and or sort of, you know, frustrating sort of, you know, development, you know, where you expected something and got something, you know, completely different? One of the examples of that that seems particularly acute to me is season four and the four kids being introduced. And David Simon in a number of interviews has said that from the very start of the season they knew that there were four different fates that were going to befall the four kids and they hadn't actually quite lined up who was going to end up where, how it was all going to finish up and that kind of happened as part of the writing process. And watching it, and maybe this is uncharitable of me, but I had an acute sense of frustration that of all four of those kids it was Namond who made it, it was Namond who got out. The most unpleasant, we first see him picking on Juki, we first see him picking on Randy, he's... In many respects, he's the kid least deserving of salvation, if that's in any way a fair thing to say. And yet, as Snoop herself says in a different episode, deserve ain't got nothing to do with it. This is not a show about neat solutions for the kids who you want to see make it. If it was that show, Prez would adopt Juki and Michael would go off and live in the country with Bug and everyone would be very happy. <laughs> the wire's the not interested in that. And yet, it's still possible for Bunny Colvin to 
you know, it is possible for that salvation to happen, uh, but it's a rare case, it's a single case, and it's got nothing to do with whoever deserves it the most. It's just... And it says um, the principal as well says to, um, to Mr. Presbo, Prez, I love Prez. Prez. <laughs> Who else loves Prez? Love Prez. How long um, would it take you to love Prez, though? <laughs> After he I blinded loved, that kid. I loved when he blinded up. that kid. That is <laughs> good police. Yeah. <laughs> but when the principal says to Prez that he can't care too much about Dookie because after Dookie, there's going to be more and more kids coming up and they'll all need his attention. They'll all need his, that extra little bit of love and care. And um, I love that dangerous minds crap that they feed us in, in movies. I love it. But... <laughs> I think it was a necessary tragedy for perhaps the most deserving to not... You know, that, that scene with Randy when he's left in the foster home and they've written, you know, snitch on his bed and then they just descend on him. Yeah, one of my... Not to in any way say anything negative about the show because obviously there's no place for that on an occasion like tonight. You don't get paid if you say anything bad. But one of my misgivings about the closing episodes is the relative neatness of the way they finish things up. But, uh, I mean, some of them feel earned, some of them feel deserved. Certainly Bubbles, I think, uh, even though it might be the most improbable of bits of hope at the end, it does feel like he's earned that. that. When he walks up the stairs into his sister's house, you feel that you've spent five series building to that point and you deserve it. Watching that early AA scene uh, really brings home why there's such value to the final AA scenes where Bubbles gets it together. But there are other moments that don't feel in, other moments that feel a bit too neat, a bit too keen to say, look, it's a cycle, it's going to... One of the ones I'd point to is the idea, the way in which in those, that final episode in particular, each of the characters, uh, you get a sense of, oh, look at this, Michael's now the new Omar, and uh, look at this, Duke is the new Bubbles and whatever. Some of those are really unsatisfying. Sidnor is the new McNulty. Nothing we've seen in the show up to that point backs up that idea. Nothing really reinforces the idea that he's got the arrogance or the self-importance or the drive, particularly, to go out there and be the new McNulty. But it's like they had a checklist of characters and went, okay, Sidnor isn't anyone yet, let's put him in the McNulty thing. But to come back to your question about satisfying, one satisfying thing in that overly neat kind of finale for me was Kima not being the new McNulty that actually one of the journeys that we'd seen through the course of the series was Kima dabbling with that, certainly in her personal life, toying with the idea of letting McNulty be a mentor. And I think one of the very satisfying things in that last series is her rejection of that, her desire not to, not to emulate him on their homeless killings, not to do any of that, but just to kind of push through and try and model herself more and lesser, I would say, than on McNulty. And I think that's, that's a really satisfying moment because it feels earned. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it's about neatness. Yeah. I think that the audience, um, despite the fact that Omar is probably the, the most popular, not just for Obama, <laughs> but for everyone, I think the audience could very easily forgive the writers for killing him. And in fact, it, it's net. <laughs> she says no. That's hilarious. Someone in the audience, oh. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's a flash forward to 2050. It's a peaceful death in his bed. All good. Oh, Watching shit. Days of Our Lives. I found that out, unfortunately, as well in my research. I went, ah, I didn't need to know that. But it's still, you don't know when it's going to come. But funnily enough, it is one of those things where you... Episode you have, you, you seven have, of the final season. 42 minutes in. You have actually thought, the way he cops it, you have actually thought throughout the show. response, dissatisfactory. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
But um, I mean, I did think that, you know, there is the scene you alluded to earlier about jumping out the building. I mean, while that's based on a real case, I would wager that that guy was not a stick-up boy who lasted for 20 years. So I, I did think that was a, a scene that was sort of, you know, a bit too fanciful, I suppose. And there were other things in season five which they felt more like they were a traditional cop show, very satisfying and entertaining, but a little bit at odds with what had gone before. See, I don't mind that. I think Hamsterdam itself is enormously fanciful, and the thing that makes it work is that it's undercut by uh, the scenes that show the way in which it's a failed experiment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, that while on the one hand, Bunny's great vision uh, has a lot going for it, and talking about a paper bag for drugs is incredibly persuasive... The show doesn't resile for a moment from showing the human consequences of it and showing the ways in which it doesn't work. Part of what bothered me, part of what stopped me being concerned about the serial killer plotline in the final series were the scenes when Kima talked to the victims' families and when she came back and that human consequence was still very much part of it. For me, that felt quite consistent with the show from the first four series. The thing about season five, with its focus on the media was to do with what's seen and what's not seen, what's mm. known and what's known. And it comes back to that thing of the different Baltimores and how well they interact and how aware of each other they are. And that seems really interesting to me, that Omar can uh, go on a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Long <that>. holiday. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you hear it come through the newspaper offices. You hear it mentioned mm. in dispatches, and it means nothing to anyone. Mm. Just as the same with Prop Joe and you know the, the duking of the stats and the education system where they're just learning the test. I mean, they've got one story, which... I, I mean, I found it fanciful but entirely satisfying. It's, it's this sort of elaborate structure in which they can hang and look at a lot of things. So the big story, the Pulitzer story, is this serial killer, which is a lie. There are all these other stories which are just going unreported in time, which we know back to front. The other is, thing know, I love about that, sorry, idea. Clem. Well, I was, I was sorry, just I'll probably say... spoil something anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, tell them what else happens. No, I, I just want to say very quickly on that storyline that the, uh, the thing I like most about it is that misanthropy that David Simon shows, I think, in that quote I read before, is also visible in that, in that it's his little dig at people who refer to the wire as Dickensian, that uh, despite the fact that they only ever refer to it as Dickensian in a complimentary way, he's obviously got his back <laughs> up and gone, screw you, don't call it Dickensian. So he makes all the stupidest people in the newspaper office <laughs> call the story Dickensian. They, oh, it's the Dickensian aspect. Um, and it seems funny to me that he bridles at that description. I mean, the way in which he departs from Dickens is Dickens, I think, is forever undercut by this sentimentality that we don't see, I, I think, anywhere in The Wire. The Wire is very anti-sentimental. But... When people talk about the Dickensian aspect, what they're talking about is the layers of society. Yeah. They're talking about the characterisation. And the fact that Simon put those words in the mouth of characters is clearly contemptuous of. Eh, he can't be an easy man to work with, I no. would have thought. I think maybe as well, though, people often say something's Dickensian when it's just a word that they say about things. You know, they're not necessarily even necessarily familiar with lots of Dickens' work. And they would say, well, it's Dickensian because it's gritty and there's lots of people in it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, on the subject, sorry. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that uh, in terms of the point that they're making at the end with the newspaper and the falseness of stories versus all the stories that don't get told, um, one of the things that when I was reading about the background to The Wire, they, um, they said that a lot of school kids in Baltimore, especially during the time that, because obviously Ed Burns worked in Baltimore as a cop in the 80s, Obviously, obviously, Ed Burns worked as a cop. <laughs> um, but a lot of school kids were really into Greek tragedy and mythology. They really 
embraced that in schools. Um, and the idea of a lot of what goes on in The Wire being tragic with the chorus and that sort of Greek tragedy model. Um, the stories that they choose to tell in The Wire, for example, with Snoop, Felicia, Snoop Pearson, same character, same name as the actress. Mm. Um, you read from Clockers before, they mentioned Peanut, who's mentioned in The Wire, and lots of, um, like, bringing back Melvin... Williams. Melvin Williams mm. to play the deacon, who Avon Barksdale was based on from an original case that Ed Burns worked on in the 80s. I think that whether or not that was the intention or not, it's a really, really beautiful and clever byproduct of The Wire that there are all of these things that are entering mythology in our time through The Wire and Clocker, uh, Clockers and The Corner that in the fantasy world, the real story is not getting told. Mm. But in the real world, the real stories are getting yeah. told. Yeah. I mean, I love that scene that you showed with, you know, Bubbles advising, you know, the cop on how to do it right. And you can just see that, you know, there could be an extra who has lived the life who's just standing off camera and saying, or just advising the writers, well, actually, this is, what, this is the well, detail was, you that need. Possum. That's it, yeah, yeah. There, one of the... That relationship between uh, truth and fiction, though, still, to me, is one of the most interesting things about the show, that it mm. kind of came from this act of journalism, came from this desire to tell these real stories and then worked out how to make it fit into a dramatic tradition, whether it's a Greek tragedy or whatever that tradition. And it... The... I do... I love the... David Simon talks a bit about the response from the government in Baltimore to being depicted in this way and has this great anecdote about the mayor getting on the phone to him and saying after Series 2, listen, we're not actually wild about being in the wire business. You're, <laughs> you're not really selling the city in the way that we'd like it to be sold. And Simon reminded him, well, you know, you said early on that you were happy to have it and rah, rah, And the mayor said, well, can you... Um, could you set the next series elsewhere? Could you just move it away from Baltimore? <laughs> David Simon said, look, I'm happy to film it elsewhere and let the money go to that city, but I'll always say it's Baltimore. <laughs> and that kind of... Uh, that disconnect between the way that the city wanted to see itself and the way he, as a particularly pugnacious journalist, wanted to portray it, it seems really kind of important to me. Mm. I actually emailed a, a reporter who's on the Baltimore Sun about this, and he's, he's a crime reporter now. And he said, you know, they based on what they experienced in the late 80s and early 90s, and more or less it's the same now, which is really dispiriting to think that, you know, 20 years ago the murder rate was this high. Apparently it's, it's dipped a little bit, like the murder rate's now down to about 260 Oh, they're juking the stats. They're juking the stats. <laughs> no, I think they juke the stats so much on the murder. On the upside, though, the education system apparently has improved in leaps and bounds. Well, leaps, perhaps not bounds, but... So it's, it's kind of dispiriting to think that, you know, this can be out there. The wire started back in 2001. It was first being filmed. You know, it's put Baltimore into the, the spotlight. You know, we're talking... I've talked to a few people about it. You know, do you want to go there? I mean, I've seen it from a distance driving past. But, you know, now I would want to go there, which is kind of a, a weird thing. I mean, and there's been talk of, you know, tours. Like, journalists have, have gone on tours, which have been put together by Vincent Peranio, the, the set director and, uh, and production designer. So it's, it's a kind of, it has kind of put Baltimore on the map, which in a strange kind of way, you know. It, there's the Baltimore of the, the wire, and then there's John Waters. So and then there's Anne Tyler, who couldn't be more removed from either John Waters or <laughs> yeah. David Simon. Or the, you know, sort of the sentimental world of Barry Levinson. It's, a, it's an interesting perspective. That's interesting what you say about the tours, though, because as Michael touched on in his talk um, with uh, Sonia... How do you say her last name? Son. Sons. Sons. Yeah. Sons. 
um, ha having reservations about using where she grew up for entertainment value, um, running tours. They haven't actually. The, it's not. I went on the Sopranos tour in in, in New Jersey. It was just bizarre. Like you're just driving through this industrial toxic hell, and these guys up there going, and this bit over here is where you can where they see in the credit sequence, and here's the the, the diner where Christopher Michael Santo was shot, and it's just like, oh yeah, that's you know, clearly entertaining. You go to the Bad of Bing and the place where they shot it and all the rest of it. Um, the idea of sort of, you know, Baltimore ghetto tourism based on the why is, I suppose, a little bit repugnant because the, the show feels like a, a real document. But it's also using people, again, like using Felicia Pearson, um, who, for, for those who don't know, Felicia Pearson killed another girl when she was 14 and spent time in jail and then came out and, as you said, met Michael K. Williams and got a part in the show. They just wrote a part in the show for her based on her. Um, and it, when, that, when she debuted on the show, the family of the girl who she killed, and it didn't even actually even occur to me when I was reading mm. her story. I just thought, well, isn't that great, you know? Coming up from the bottom. Um, obviously, they were really, really upset about not only her getting a role on the show, but her being glorified, and her playing exactly the same kind of person that she was when she killed People are up in arms about Mel Melvin Williams' ongoing role as the deacon exactly. as well. But I mean, the guy, did, the guy who plays the, the deacon, Melvin Williams, was one of the kingpins that Ed Burns actually put down through a wire. And he did 16 years in jail, got out, got reformed, is a man of God, and he plays the deacon in that ongoing role. But people weren't too happy about that either. I suppose, in, in a way, the casting of these former cons is in itself a, a way to say that, you know, there could be hope after the street. And, for example, yeah. the actor playing Stan Valchek really is a grumpy old man. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not acting. That is spooky. Mm. Yeah. 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 Um, should we open it up to the, yeah, the peeps? The Absolutely. Got, yes, oh. I do. I do have mine. Uh, shall we open it up to the floor? Hell yeah. To the floor. Um, as you'll find out as I speak more, I'm, I'm actually from, from the States, so this is a bit of a question that I don't, I don't mean to make like, I don't mean to say it's me asking you for a response directly, but I'm interested in a show that's, I think, so popular in the States because it is, like, it's about the American dream, it's about the American reality, how it's gained popularity everywhere else in the world, and if it's just because people... Um, can relate to like the personal stories or what it is that makes it like so enrapturing for the entire world, even though it's about America. Um, I mean, absolutely no disrespect at all when I say this, but um, are you really American? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I knew that this would come up as like, why do you like this show about my country, which is not all. It's a totally different no, no, no. I, I was going to say I've spent some time in America and um, in with lots of Americans at different points in my life, and I've always been surprised at how surprised they are that Australians have not just an interest in America, but kind of an active knowledge of politics and current affairs, because so much of it is filtered to us anyway. So that's when I, when I say I mean no disrespect. It just seems natural to me to have an interest in what goes on in America, because we seem to know so much about it. I'd say no disrespect, but your people are fucked. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Uh, what I was going to say is I think because it's a show about middle management as much as it is about anything else, you know, that, uh, that part of what they, I think, have a lot of fun with, and sometimes it's too neat, the parallelism, but is it's a show about uh, 
corruption in any institution, and it's incredibly familiar. It's about the failure at the heart of the capitalist experiment, at the, at the heart of democracy in the Western world at the moment. And that, these are, it's Greek tragedy. I mean, that, that, that's the, these are so broad, so big, that uh, there's something deeply satisfying about it from a kind of visceral narrative perspective. Even when it doesn't deliver in the way we expect narrative to deliver, even when it's perhaps unsatisfying, uh, in terms of giving those easy rewards. I think that drive behind it uh, is, yeah, there's something about that. That's I literary. I think it's because it's a good show. It's really yeah. dramatic, it's really exciting, it's really interesting, it feels real. I mean, it feels really real, which is great. I mean, sort of in the same way that The Hurt Locker did, I suppose, and resonated with a lot of people who've never, you know, been bomb disposal experts in Iraq. But um, as a former bomb disposal <laughs> sorry, expert in Iraq, I'd like to I, I should have put that in your intro, shouldn't I? IED special. No one ever puts that in. I uh, think what it meant was that um, because we're so used to seeing American entertainment, I don't think that we even distinguish between it being something that should be unfamiliar to us. Yeah. I would say that the characters, because very seldom do you understand why people do things in popular entertainment. Uh, Good guys do things that are good because they're scripted as good guys and the opposite's true of bad guys. Here it's a mixture and we understand why someone like D'Angelo would do what he does. Weebae's wife comes across like some sort of hideous Lady Macbeth until you go, right, okay, they don't need to actually tell us this but we just realise that's the only life she's known. We understand why she's doing what she's doing. Um, I think that the fact that it's, we understand motivations in the same way that we try to understand our own and other people in our very far from Baltimore's Mean Streets lives, but also the fact that the, show's open, the, the show and the lives depicted are open-ended. There aren't any moments of ultimate triumph where you can go, yep, the good guys won and you know, they got promoted and they got, they got to this point and that was the end point. It's like our lives, you know, the, the game is the game until you know, we, we snuff it. Um, so we don't ever totally triumph, I suppose, in the same way that like bubbles, we don't ever totally lose. Until, also, we know, until of course, Omar comes up and takes you out. Also, have you seen any Australian TV? <laughs> Maybe we should sing the neighbours thing to it. Ah, uh, not sufficiently patriotic oh, up here. No, that's right. Um, I watched the um, series The Corner, <coughs> and it has this extraordinary. Um, central female character who's a drug addict. Why do you think there is no representation of women in, you know, really kind of, you went, you went into it a little bit, Clementine. Is it sorry, Clementine? Yeah. yeah. Um, you touched on it earlier, but the actual exploration of women as drug addicts in it don't seem to exist in the wire. And yet she was an amazing character in The Corner. I haven't seen The Corner, um, and I'm not really that I think you're absolutely right. Clearly, in uh, their experience as journalists, as cops, as whatever, they came in contact with many incredibly powerful uh, women who are at the centre of families or whatever else. I really, maybe I'm giving them too much the benefit of the doubt here, but I really think it's just a symptom of the particular story they were choosing to tell with The Wire, that it was, uh, in the first series, their emphasis was very much to be on the relationship between the police and the kind of kingpins in the... Um, the, you know, the Avon Barksdale figures, that was so central to that kind of premise of the first series that there wasn't really room for... It was the point I was making earlier about the lack of 
focus on victims a bit uh, at times in The Wire, that I think The Corner is amazing because it's like the entire show if it were focused on Bubbles and his world rather than on the world that kind of feeds into that, if that makes any sense. Then the second series, by moving on to the docks, is still staying in that very male domain, uh, politics in the third series. It, it's by no means an incidental thing, and I think it is a shortcoming of the show, but I think the difference in focus between The Corner and The Wire is one of the difference between the focus of the personal and the institutional, and the institutions are all very male-oriented. Is it also saying by focusing on, you know, male fuck-ups so much that, you know, the patriarchy is as fucked as capitalism? I mean... I think that the closest example that you get in The Wire to a female drug addict being a more-than-one-episode character is Michael's mother. And you can definitely see the ramifications of weight. There's a scene where Michael's talking to Randy, who's talking about how Miss Anna, his foster mother, has him on a short leash. He has to get home because he's on a short leash. And Michael says to him at least you have a leash. And obviously, they never really going to clarify whether or not he was abused by his stepfather, mm. but it's pretty clearly indicated. So she's not only an absent mother but and, and a heroin addict, but she's also willing to overlook what she clearly knows was going on because she's the kind of mother that needs to have a man in her life. And I think that... Um, I mean, I guess Bubbles did represent the one kind of drug addict that was supposed to represent them all. If they'd had more of an opportunity, they could have fleshed her out more as a character. Um, but just generally speaking, I, I wasn't... I love the show, but I wasn't overly impressed with the way that women were written in it. I, I do think, though, the more I think about it, there is something in the focus on the institutions. Bit, nah. See, I like Beatty. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't sell her short. I think she's quite a, a good and complex character. I think that the scene of Beatty with her ex-boyfriend trying to get herself an informant for the first time speaks volumes about her as a professional. I think I, I really do think there is something in the fact that The Wire is more interested, to a fault, I think, with the institutions than it is with the individuals. But I think the women in The, in the Wire have been written more so than some of the men as clichés. Like, um, Sean... Shardine, Shardine, mm. the stripper with the heart of gold. Oh, she has you know? contact lenses and she's <laughs> nice. The stripper with the heart of gold. There's she the gives the toughest, money back. The toughest yeah. nails, uh, but secretly wants the love of a man attorney. You know, all these sorts of Just like pretty like. two-dimensional <laughs> female characters that they kind of glossed over. That um, well, I mean, the self-loathing drunken detective is also sort of an archetype. So I, mean, yeah. I suppose it's what, what the characters do within those... That, that idea about uh, cliché and stereotypes came up in a lot of the early criticism of The Wire. It's weird, as the show went on, it was like critics were more willing to accept it on its own terms and became less critical, if you like. But early on there were accusations, you know, Maury Levy as the slimy uh, Jewish lawyer uh, who's constantly trying to get money for himself was seen as an incredibly offensive stereotype. Now, Simon and crew would argue, oh, it's... well." the fact that he's Jewish is incidental and the fact that he, you know, he's this kind of archetype is incidental. It probably isn't. I mean, there probably is a certain amount of shorthand and a certain amount of trading and cliche and stereotype that happens to the female characters, that happens to, I think, to the white characters more than the black characters, which uh, maybe is my own kind of awareness coming to it. But 
the more the thing that struck me on the rewatch was the way in which the series expands as it goes on that early on the depictions are quite kind of closed in and insular and as it grows as city hall comes into the mix or the docks or or the newspaper your sense of baltimore grows and your sense of the depth of the characters moves them away from being archetypes and and cliches, I think. You also admire them for their skill and their tenacity. Oh, like, Murray, you know, yes. Murray Levy, when he, when he turns on his, you know, his bargaining skills, is a really, like, I wouldn't say appealing character, but he's, you've got to admire the man for what he does. And like Clay Davis, when he finally gets up and has his day in court, she... <laughs> I mean, we see it because we've seen him through all the seasons. We know exactly what he's up to. The courtroom and the jury are only seeing the performance he gives. And, you know, you, you almost feel like going, well, how the hell you got out of that one, I don't know, but well done. I thought it was interesting that L- Levy seemed genuinely surprised that Omar would... And genuinely offended yeah. that Omar would possibly dare compare himself to... I think that's partly because Omar's <laughs> the joker in the pack. That mm. Omar doesn't play by the rules. That there are certain things that are expected of someone in any given social situation. That are the ways they behave if they're in a courtroom. That you know this is Levy in his comfort zone. And Omar, any time he walks into a scene, upsets the kind of... I, I agree with you. It's great that kind of bug-eyed look Levy gets through. Because what the... This doesn't happen to me. I, mm. But we also expect Omar as possibly the most threatening character who you know stick a knife in your butt or blow the back of your head out as soon as look at you if you're not a citizen and doing him wrong, he doesn't utter, utter a swear word. I mean, we expect mm. him to be, you know, as foul-mouthed as the rest of them and he's, you know, very, very well-spoken. Indeed. Indeed, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of disagree. I think McNulty becomes a bit cliché given that he's healed by the love of a good woman and that sort of thing as well, so... I think some of them can be quite cliched in there anyway. Um, but what I wanted to ask you was, given that um, there was this TV series has essentially been successful on DVD rather than through television airing, is there hope for studios like for stations like HBO to actually become studios in a sense and producing something like a movie that then gets to screen and then put onto DVD? you're not watching the DVD with all the ads that you would get when you're watching it on HBO or like we'd be watching it here. HBO has screened, produced and screened films. They did Grey Gardens, didn't they? Yeah, but I mean like like for TV shows rather than... I think the way that it... Hopefully it has already changed things and will continue to. I think the way TV's changed in the past 10 years or so, and I think the glory days of HBO are largely responsible for this, is we talk about auteurs with TV in a way that we didn't used to. We talk about David Milch and Deadwood. We talk about Aaron Sorkin and The West Wing. We talk about David Simon and The Wire. And that whole concept of the authorship of a television show uh, is really exciting. It's certainly, I mean, for all I flip about Australian telly, it's certainly something that we don't really get in the same way here. And I think it's a very healthy thing for the culture. The other thing I would say is the fixed end date. I think if one lesson can be learnt from something like The Wire, it's to have something constructed as an entire... Whatever misgivings you might have about the final series or how it wraps up or whatever else, it's an entire thing. It's an entire creative act from beginning to end. It doesn't keep going purely because of the commercial logic that they got another season, they got a renewal, so let's do a series where, you know, McNulty's at the ski slopes and solves a murder. Although I would watch that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same with Battlestar Galactica. They planned it for... 
knew I could try and get, get the whole story. Yeah, <laughs> well, it, it's, I mean, a show like Lost, which limps along for oh, series after God. series, where it's just continuing on yeah. that rationale of network TV. The moment that the creators are told, OK, you finish up in 2010, suddenly they start mapping out a plan. OK, this isn't the X-Files. We're not making it up as we go along and going to have at least four series that make no sense in the context of what's come before. This is, we're going to an end point, and so we're creating something. And it's interesting, this isn't episodic TV anymore, and that's a really interesting and exciting way that the DVD-led viewing of it, the, it can change the model. I think but they can actually that... start making shows knowing the majority of audience are going to get them on DVD. So they can probably add levels of complexity in there that they wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable with if their main audience is going to be week to week. I mean, one thing that is interesting with the DVD is that in, in the States when it was broadcast, I'm not sure if it's the same here, but they, each week they had a previously on the wire. God knows which editor was tasked with sorting that out each week. But um, on DVD, obviously, it didn't. You know, you could rewind if you wanted to. If you need clarification, go for it. If otherwise... Let's move on. So I think that new format for watching TV is going to uh, possibly allow for you know, greater creativity and complexity, I hope. But how's that going to fit in as well with um, when you have TV that's not made in single episodes and you have long-ranging series that, you know, whether or not it's over a four- or six-season arc, has a beginning, a middle and an end, but people like to watch them on DVD, especially people who don't, get to watch them in America so they don't have to watch them week to week. How's that? Is that kind of sort of also what you were asking? Like, how's that going to continue? If the te television landscape is changing, that's something that I've kind of wondered in terms of commercial viability. How will they keep making TV shows? It's, I mean, the interesting thing in the States... Them week to week. The interesting thing in the States in the past... Even in the past year to 18 months is the number of times cable networks... Uh, have started beating the free-to-air networks in the ratings. That the, the model really is changing when it comes to advertising. To I don't know. I don't think they've got the answers to it yet. But you have something like when the writer's strike occurred, Joss Whedon writing Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog for the internet. Uh, that's him still wanting to be a creator, still wanting to make good television. It's still television even if you watch it on the internet. It's still, as a term, that's still a useful enough catch-all for us. But it's nice. I mean... But not for nothing, the HBO slogans, it's not TV, it's HBO. Mm. Um, that's true of many things that aren't, strictly speaking, HBO anymore. They're not quite TV, but there's something in between. As my the friend Karen says, HBO, oh my God. <laughs> the consumption in the States, I mean, we were there about 18 months ago and stayed with some fairly well-off relatives and they had, you know, the ultimate 7,000 channel cable set up with TiVo and On Demand. And you could pretty much, you know, it was almost like having access to a DVD, you know. Oh, we've, we've TiVo'd the last three episodes of whatever and we can get an on-demand of, you know, the latest one for this window. So, I mean, you could probably be in a situation where, you know, you've got a Saturday night free, you could watch four or five episodes of The Wire, you've consumed it in a block so you've got it in your mind and then, you know, a few weeks later do it again. So it's, it's very much being able to consume, watch stuff when you want to, how you want to. Um, and ca cable's the perfect delivery me mechanism for that, whereas, you know, the free-to-airs, uh, the network TV shows, I mean, even if you tape something now off free-to-air, just the, the fact that we've kind of been spoiled by watching it on DVD, the idea of just even fast-forwarding through the stupid ads, just, you know, just, I'll, I'll wait until it's on DVD. 
Um, I'd just like to um, ask you about um, something that was touched upon um, at the beginning, which is about the novel-like aspect of the wire as um, how it's written, and some of the things that you're talking about. Um, interesting, perhaps, that in early, the early days of the novels, novels came out as serials, and you got the serials, and you know, chapter by chapter. Um, maybe that's also why it's in a way uh, related to the Dickensian aspects, which uh, <laughs> I, I probably think it's more like the Hugo aspect, that idea that a character's not always good and not always bad. Or Zola would be the other one who uh, would make more sense. Yeah, I can absolutely picture, picture people on the docks of Baltimore standing there waiting for the ship to come in to see if little Nell's died, you know, the <laughs> instalment of the book coming through. It's, uh, it's not... I mean, it's interesting because while I think we're seeing a moment where the model of TV is changing, I don't think it's having necessarily an impact on the book. I don't think it's changing the book particularly as a form. It's, I don't think it's even throwing down a challenge, even though I don't... I thought about that critic saying that he thought the great narrative achievement of the decade was The Wire over any books, over any films. I'm not sure if I agree, but I'm not categorically ruling out that I might. But the luxury of a 60-hour television program versus a novel, they're unlike things, and that's mm. okay. And the one isn't kind of sapping the abilities of the other. It's not a tussle for supremacy, I don't think. I think there's still extraordinary novels being written that are uh, changing that form as much as something like The Wire is changing TV. Um, I think it's beyond the novel. I mean, it's, it's sort of a... The, the greatest endpoint of a bunch of things, film, even you know, radio serials, I suppose. Uh, it's the endpoint of it's the, the best thing we've had so far from this serial, which is also self-contained. I mean, I think the other thing is the way it eschews traditional televisual ticks and cues, not to have a score running through it. Mm. I mean, how watching again, how jarring is that one scene where they play a score as Omar uh, as? Um, as Barksdale walks slow motion down you know, through the... And you watch it and you think, oh, this feels like other television. This isn't actually... To not, have, to not have a score anywhere through the series and then do a musical montage in the finale of it, every series means that actually suddenly the language of television in the final episode feels a bit like catharsis. You get that montage and you go, oh, good, I know mm. what this mm. is. I can deal with that. Mm. It's all snapshots of everyone's life and it's going to end with the game continuing and then maybe a little coda on the end and I'm happy, I'm comfortable. The familiarity is comfortable and it's resistance to that comfort the rest of the time, I think, is, is really interesting. It's like it's, they've earned it at that point. They're allowed to give us a little bit of what we want um, but it's not like, you know, it's something that they're relying on constantly like other TV. It's, it's something that's been earned. I mean, you can forgive Omar being a little bit cartoonish because the rest of it is so, you know, it seems so real. I like it anyway. Mm. The bit with the cape where he flies off the, at the end was just great. <laughs> <laughs> I am Super Omar. Speaking of Super Omar, shall we... Uh... Speaking of Super Omar, that's the <laughs> worst segue I've ever heard in my life. That's <laughs> a, I've this got, is the what first is uh, live in the studio Pepper? you've been to. I am quite famous for my horrendous segues <laughs> to wrap you guys That off. was murder, really. Right. That just... Um, we, we were talking about how to give away uh, the box set, and there are a number of different uh, ideas. Clementine, go on, drive them. Well, obviously I love bubbles, and I love particularly how Andre Yo-Yo... Yo-Yo. Andre Yo-Yo. Andre 3000. Andre Yo-Yo. One of the most effective parts of his character for me is that kind of 
gait that he has, you know, it's even when he's sitting in the, um, the Narcotics Anonymous meeting, everything he's wearing seems too big for him. It's, his tracksuit pants make him look almost like a little boy, I think, in his big brother's clothes. And kind of how he sort of just hops along. I'd like to see an impression of Rose Gate. I'm prepared to broaden the category to include, if you want to try a list of Freeman's walk, uh, to quote Bunk, look at that bow-legged motherfucker. I made him walk like that. Uh, would be nice. Or your best Clay Davis, um, which yeah, yeah. I think it, you wouldn't even need to leave your chair for. <laughs> or, you or your, your favourite your favorite quote. Or your best we can judge that. Or sing the opening theme song from beginning to end. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, show of hands, favourite version of the opening theme song? Yeah, I think it has... Oh, you're going season four, the I'm kids? season one. It is quite nice, the meaning behind it, to have the kids of Baltimore singing a version of it. I think we can all agree like the most egregiously well. terrible version is season three. Overproduced, bad. I, I'm going to Tom Waits. Anyone willing to... This is your chance to humiliate What's yourself in return for... What's up with Tom Waits in there? Bling. No, I just... Oh. They can win stuff. They've oh. got to win it. What would Why you like to do that? to win? I would just like to win, thank you. Shit. <laughs> I'm, just a, I'm just a humble motherfucker with a big ass dick. <laughs> well, well, that just seems. Ah, uh, but quite... what came after that? <laughs> right. I, I believe I after humble. that, bunk. I am. I'm not that humble. That not is that bunk. Humble. The bunk. incomparable bunk. Or maybe in a show that might have slightly dubious uh, gender depictions, uh, going with a quote like that is a good way to win a prize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right on. And he stepped up. Just go and pick that up. Clementine. Whoops. Sorry, that was just almost undone by the wire. Weird. <laughs> I just have to show you my T-shirt as well. I made this for today. Do you remember this? <laughs> And I have to show you my underpants. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. But you're not wearing any, you said. Thank you, you to Michael Adams and our Michael Williams and Clementine Ford. Uh, it has been insightful as always. The, um, the other thing that I'm quite famous for in these live at the studio sessions is locking you in until you fill out the platforms. And this week, I'm going to entice you with uh, to uh, a double pass to the next live in the studio session, which is Mad Men, Mad Women. You can win it. You're not all getting one. Thank you, everybody. And thank you to Darks for playing amazing clips from the Bible.